0: Imagine you could hand anyone you're speaking to a pair of goggles and they'd put it on, and those goggles would be colored this very specific color. And this magical pair of goggles would allow that person to see the world the way you see it. They would understand things the way you want them to understand it. They would notice what you want them to notice. They would have a view on things that matches your own. And that would allow you then to move with them or Lead them somewhere more productive, somewhere that benefits them, and of course, benefits you because you're building a business, you're starting a movement, you're creating a community or an audience. Well, this magic pair of goggles exists. It's not tactile, it's not a grouping of plastic and glass and elastic that you hand somebody. It's a story, but a story used in a very specific way to start communicating with somebody to connect with them and give them a certain way of seeing something that you then teach whether you're speaking to them like from a stage or you're working with them like in a workshop or a client engagement when you start with a story even a really really small one it's like all of a sudden they see things the way you do and that makes everything that follows more productive and more powerful but for the life of me I can't figure out why we don't start with a story. Maybe it feels like we're stepping out over a wire without any kind of net below us because no one is saying to you, hey, can you answer this question? And when you do, please start with a story. No, it's just on us to decide to do it. Maybe we think it's cliche. You know, it's like that sitcom dad that sits down on the bed of the kid. Son, you know, back when I was your age, there was this kid down the street. Or maybe, I don't know, we don't think we have a good enough story, a a grand enough story. But for whatever reason, we're not really starting with a story enough. Not enough to resonate, not enough to lead. But that's the job. And so today, in this very special second episode of our mini series called Signature Stories, that's what I want us to think about. How can we use tiny stories pulled from our own lived experience to do something rather magical? like handing them a pair of goggles that they use to see things the way you see them. It's illuminating and awesome and empowering. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable. How creators learn to trust themselves, not conventional thinking. I'm Jay Konzo, and I want more people to make things that matter. So every episode, we tell the stories of people who made the leap between what best practices said they have to do to what their intuition was urging them to try. And we can all choose to do that, because as you'll hear on this show, it's only unthinkable till you hear their side of the story. And today's story is about, once more, a story. Yeah, it's a story about a story. Or really, it's a story about the process of crafting stories. Because you see, this is episode two of our mini-series called Signature Stories. It's kind of like Song Exploder meets Professional Storytelling. In Signature Stories, our guests take us inside the hidden parts and pieces in their process of crafting and performing their best stories. What makes it resonate? What kind of posture do they bring out in themselves? How do they see the world and also their participation in the world to craft something powerful? It's not just a process, there's a posture to it. And why do these stories matter to the individual's career, company, and community? Today's storyteller is... Michael Bungay Stanier, a.k.a. MBS. MBS is best known for the book The Coaching Habit. It sold over 1.2 million copies and was a key resource in the transformation of Microsoft's culture, very famously. He also has a brand new book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, and that just came out in the summer of 2023. Michael also previously founded Box of Crayons, where he trained hundreds of thousands of managers to be more coach-like in their organizations, and his clients ranged from the aforementioned Microsoft to Gucci. But before that, MBS was a student who is getting banned from high school graduation thanks to something only known as the balloon incident. He was also sued by one of his law school professors for defamation as he mastered stagecraft as a speaker for the first time during his law school's sketch, Synchronized Nude Male Modeling. Clearly a man of many talents. Anyways, I'm thrilled that he took some time to deconstruct a very important story with us. A story which honestly, he just kind of uh, workshopped with us. I don't know, it was very interesting. We, we had a fork in the road moment and we could have taken it in either direction. And I thought we took one that was really fruitful for the conversation and for our cause today, you and me trying to understand the process, the practice and the posture of being an effective storyteller. Okay. So I was was trying to think of a fun way to start here. Uh, But I think the fun way is also the most useful way, hopefully to your cause, which is you just published a book. And when I received a copy, thank you, by the way, I was looking at it and I was thinking, why is this not a popular topic or a more popular topic for authors and speakers and big thinkers to examine? Because it seems so vital. So, just for context for people listening, it's about how to make every working relationship you have with other people better. The title, How to Work with Almost Anyone, Five Questions for Building the Best Possible Relationships. So, my observation here is there are tons of books about business success broadly, about leadership more specifically, about winning friends and influence over other people. Why are there not more? books or more people talking about this topic of interpersonal relationships at work, because it is, it feels like inescapably vital to everybody.
1: It feels like there's a bit of a gap, isn't there? Like there's a whole world of people talking about relationships. So you have people like Esther Perel and Terry Real and Dan Siegel and John Gottman. These are the people who I really looked up to and and researched actually, as I was writing this book, who have spent a lifetime examining how, as Esther Perel would say, how we mate in captivity, you know, who are the who are the folks we hang out with, how marriage works, how marriage doesn't work, um, and kind of what it takes to kind of work through that. But those all live in the family and relationship space. And then in the organizational world, which is where I, I tend to think of as my primary audience, there's a bunch of stuff on fighting. And you know, it's like, how do you have good conflict? Which is also kind of interpersonal stuff. But When you think about how much of our success and how much of our happiness depends on our working relationships and how for the most part our approach to that is I'll cross my fingers and hope for the best and maybe this time I'll get lucky because the last few times I haven't got so lucky. It did feel like a a gap to me. And I think the obvious reason is that just nobody's as brilliant as me at spotting the gap and and writing about (laughs) it. But if it wasn't that, which is possible I guess, I'm going to say that it is hard to have relationships with the people you work with, to work well with people, because other people are messy and confusing and irrational, (laughs) and you too are messy and confusing and irrational, and it seems hard to figure out the mechanics of how to work better with people. So you have somebody like uh, Amy Edmondson, who has been the kind of the OG about psychological safety for 10 years. And everybody talks about that, you know, like Google have done Project Oxygen and Project Aristotle about what it takes to be a great manager and what it takes to be a great team. And psychological safety is woven throughout that. But you don't read Amy's work as a to-do list. You read Amy's work as a academic... Championing of a cause and giving us language, super helpful. And I really am on a quest to kind of unweird important stuff like this, and to try and make it feel practical and doable for people. So, hence my my best shot, which is this new book.
0: You in the book tell a brief story. Uh, it opens a chapter where you're talking about when your dad was dying, and you proposed working through what you call a keystone conversation. Yeah. And I just have two quick questions on that. So first, very tactically, can you just define a keystone conversation for us?
1: Yeah, it's the big idea of the book, really, which is if you want to create the best possible relationship with the people you work, not necessarily brilliant, but as good as it can be, you want to have a conversation about how you work together before you plunge into the minutiae of what you're working on. And the minutiae is always there and loud and urgent and exciting and important and worrying. So we are constantly drawn into the, the the what of it and taking a beat and pulling back and going, hey, how will we work together? The Keystone conversation illuminated by
0: the personal story of your dad was really what struck me. How do you decide when writing a book or anything, communicating in any way, that you're going to include a moment or a story that's deeply personal, vulnerable, emotional, and then also what details to bring out.
1: That's a very interesting question, in part because I'm typically not that much of a storyteller in the books that I write. Hardly the story about my dad and my dad's death and me asking my mom and dad to have a conversation about how they wanted to be with each other in the last weeks or months of my dad's life because we knew he was at home and had a terminal disease. I wanted to give the book an emotional heft. It comes right at the end of the of the book. Kind of it's a kind of emotional point to it. And it kind of lands this insight that these conversations are actually just human to human. You don't have to be in a working relationship. And I also wanted to role model the awkwardness and the vulnerability and the hardness and the resistance, all of that stuff that is true about everybody trying to take this stuff on. And I also didn't want to overly share what my private parents talked about. So I kind of glossed over most of that. But I wanted to say, look at this. There was, this was a conversation that I helped facilitate and that not a single one of the three of us wanted to do. Like we're all like, this is a terrible idea. And we're all like, this is probably a good idea. And good idea beat terrible idea by about 3%. <laughs> the previous book I wrote, which is called How to Begin, which is a book on how do you find your worthy goal? How do you find something that is thrilling and important and daunting for you? I made a very determined effort to role model the struggle to figure that stuff out so throughout that book i tell two stories of me kind of wrestling with and trying to come up with my own worthy goals one about something to do with being a ceo and stepping away from that role and the other from trying to actually launch a podcast and try and have some success with that and i got a lot of feedback and comments around you know we appreciated how open and vulnerable you are and and how personal that felt in terms of sharing those stories i still don't share a whole lot of me and in part Jay that's because I think often stories don't always serve the audience (laughs) as well as the speaker or the writer might think they're like it's more about look at look at me whereas I'm really interested in look at you how do I get you to be interacting and thinking and kind of moving it over to you so I don't want to make myself the hero I sit with this as a really fundamental challenge all the time which is like how do I be a teacher how do I be an influencer? And how do I move off stage and not be in the spotlight and claim that, you know, the star, the guru, the kind of that, that status. In part, Jay, because, you know, I'm a middle-aged slash late middle-aged, overeducated, road scholar, straight white dude. I have the keys to the kingdom. It is easy for me to claim the spotlight. It's like my birthright, all the complications that that has. Mm -hmm. I'm mm-hmm. like, how do I not be the hero? So how am I trying to invite other people's stories to come in? Even so that, like when you listen to the audiobooks that I record, um, like the audiobook for this new book, I've got people in between each chapter telling their story of a good or a bad working relationship because I want to have other voices telling this stuff, not just mine.
0: Before we were recording, we sort of said, we could take this in one of two ways. And you chose the way, I'll tip my hand now, you chose the way I was hoping you'd choose. Which is, you said, Jay, I have two different stories. I have one I've told in a lot of places, and I don't tell it as much anymore, but it's sort of a proven story that I've roadshowed a bit. And we could talk about that. Or there's this other one that's kind of in draft stage, and I'm kind of thinking it's important, and you know, there's some details that are murky or not quite there, and we can kind of workshop it together. And so we decided we'll do that one. So before we have you tell it, can you just give us a brief sum up of like, what is the story about and how do you anticipate
1: using it? So with the new book coming out, I'm now running virtual and live experiences, teaching people around some of the tools that are in the book. And I'm encouraging them to tap into their own experience of their best and their worst working relationships so they can kind of mine them for information and data which is useful for themselves but also useful for others. So there's a practical level. There's also a deeper level which is when you are the teacher you are the strongest signal in the room and so what you signal is okay or not okay is the extent to which the audience will will go to their own edges. So often what I'm trying to do is tell stories that lower my status, increase my vulnerability, show my messiness, show my struggle. So people can go, oh, okay, that's good. Michael's a basket case some of the time as well, if not all of the <laughs> time. I have some permission to do that as well. It's also, I kind of want to be a stand-up comedian. So don't we al- go- I'm going for a laugh. But the thing is, that I've, I've done the stand-up comedian training. And as a stand-up comedian, you have to be funny every... 15 to 20 seconds. If you're not, you suck as a stand-up comedian. But if you're a, a speaker and you're funny once every 10 minutes, everybody thinks you're a genius and I get paid more. I've definitely chosen the right path here. But part of it is I am seeking to make the audience laugh. I'm doing that throughout the process with them. Not just look how hilarious I am, but I'm constantly managing the energy of the group. And when the group laughs, the group is together as a group and so the, the sense of tribiness increases in the room when a sense of tribiness increases a sense of safety increases once the sense of safety increases they're better able to be present with me to be open to what I'm trying to teach them
0: What a wonderful use case for a story, oh my goodness So, without further ado please feel free to share, again a raw lump of clay version that we're going to shape and mold and shave and add to and all that later <laughs>
1: So let me tell you about one of my worst working relationships, and it happened as soon as I moved up to Toronto from Boston. So I had just come off a pretty miserable working experience in Boston. I had this small, Napoleonic, terrible boss, and I finally quit, and I was like, ah, I'm done. And my wife and I decided to move to Toronto for all sorts of assorted reasons, and I had a job lined up in a consultancy, which I was kind of looking forward to it. And our ticket out of Boston was on 9-11. And so exactly complications left, right, and center around that. Planes flying into buildings. My plane wasn't taking off anytime soon, so we finally rented a car and drove across the border and you know, waited in line 12 hours to cross the customs, but we got into Canada. But pretty much as I crossed into Canada, I got a call from the consultancy that I had a job with, that you don't have a job anymore, because we're not sure if we have jobs anymore. We're trying to figure all of this out ourselves. That The world has ended. That's what it felt like at 9-11. They said, look, we've got a, a client of ours who we'll make an introduction to, and they may be able to help you out. And indeed, that client helped me out. They hired me to come in and work on a big change project that they were working on. So they were changing the brand, the name they were known by, the logo they had, and they wanted me to run an internal change project. So that things would shift inside to reflect the new promise they were making outside. And again, this brand alignment. And this is work I'd been doing and I, I knew a little bit about. So I was like, fantastic. I'll be the director of internal brand alignment or something like that. So I show up and um it starts pretty badly. The team is working on floor fourteen and my boss has, We don't have room for you up here, you'll have to work on floor eight. I'm like, okay sure. So I'm in a tiny little cubicle isolated from everybody else. And she's like, and you don't have any budget. And I'm like, okay, so I've got no money to spend. She's like, and I'm not going to introduce you to any of the people. And I'm like, okay, so I've got no team. And I've got no budget and I've got no indirect control and I've got no influence. And I was still optimistic because I'm an idiot. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of stay keen. And I'm going to have ideas. And it quickly became apparent to not just me, but the 10 people on the team, that we had no idea what we were doing. My experience was that I would spend my time coming up with interesting ideas and change strategies, and i go and pitch them to this person, and she'd be like, nope, don't like that, go away and have another go at it. I'd kind of go away and lick my tongue, I'm running out of strategies, there's only so many strategies I can come up with to help drive change in this organization. But the real, the visceral experience for me was the team meetings. And because of the team meetings, we gave this person the nickname Red Dot. Because, you know in a movie, when the assassin trains their laser rifle on your head and this little red dot appears? (laughs) That's what it was like in the team meetings. We'd have them once a week. It was never a good meeting. And we'd all sit there kind of worrying it's a dark room, no windows, so it always felt ominous. And she would walk in, and we kind of had this moment where we were waiting to see on whose head the red dot would metaphorically appear. And as soon as it did, you could tell, and the rest of us would get our chance, and we'd be kind of moving you know, out of range so we weren't going to be kind of covered by the metaphorical gore, and somebody would be eviscerated in every single meeting. Sometimes it was me, sometimes it was other people, but it was always somebody's fault. And I had, let's call it 10 or 15 years working experience before, so I wasn't entirely naive to this, pretty naive, but not entirely naive. So I was like, you know what, I can see what's going on here. And I would actually spend, you know, every Friday afternoon doing a kind of weekly debrief with myself and kind of analyzing what was going on. And I would use a model called the drama triangle. I'm like, oh, she's playing the persecutor role. And I spend my time bouncing between the victim role and the rescuer role. So I had an intellectual understanding of what was going on. But that wasn't enough to protect me from the emotional impact of this working relationship because we were all terrified of her. And we all lost our confidence and our competence. She was out of her depth. From some distance, I can see that she was now struggling. And the thing I think about is, you know, the new book is called How to Work with Almost Anyone. And it's like, was she an almost she wanted my almost, or was there something I could have done that would have actually helped us find a way to work better together? And I'm not sure. I know at the time, it felt like she was impossible to work with, and I was a victim of that experience, and you know, I, I could it all sorts of labels for her. But I think where I am now is to think, look, even with the relationships that are hard and a bit miserable and are not working particularly well, What would it mean if you could make those bearable and workable and get throughable? Because where people go to when they think about how to work with almost anyone is like, how do I have more brilliant working relationships? But I also think, what if you could make the bottom 20% of your working relationships more bearable, more, more capable, more competent? What difference would that make in your life? Wow! Thank you for that. You sure that was pretty? That was a lot more baked than half. How'd it feel? I've told little fragments of that. I've told the red dot moment, it's it's, the strongest moment. Yeah, it's the strongest moment because it's visceral and it kept you know. It's like, what's the red dot about? So that I have told before, but I haven't put it into that kind of setup, tell the story, and then draw the conclusion from it. That's all. Mm. That's that's all basically just made up in the spot. It's
0: a couple things that stood out. I think it was really strong, and it serves. The point you're trying to make well, which I guess there's two. One is overt, the things you're saying. Those are the points you're making. But there's also this other insight that you gave us beforehand, which is like the purpose of telling the story is to increase the safety of the room and and lower your status as a teacher. So people go, oh, I have permission to share like this and divulge what I've been through. And I think that's wonderful. It seems pretty effective at doing that already. Thanks. Um, one of the first things that jumped out to me was there's almost like three blocks at the beginning there's like two short blocks and then a long third block i think the long third block is the story which is talking about this client and then Was red this? dot and all that the first two blocks were something happened in boston and you quit and then your tickets were on nine eleven and they were interesting but i almost think to make them really gripping you just sort of like layer on too much to it so i almost wonder like what if those came out if you just somehow started with like I was in this dire strait or I was facing this problem or challenge and along comes this opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. When I think of stories that I admire and I kind of try and do this myself is I'm always trying to James Bond it so that, you know, in a a James Bond movie... There's never a long explanation about how James Bond happens to be in Tuscany. Right. You're in Tuscany and James Bond is in a car and going really fast and you're like, and you beating the hell out of somebody and they're beating the hell out of him and the car's just gone off a cliff and you're like, oh my God, I'm, th- I'm 45 seconds in and I'm like having a heart attack because of the adrenaline. And I'm like, more often I'll kind of try and start in a place of like, cut the first chapter. It's like writing a book, Jay. Yeah? You know, you're like the first chapter. You've kind of written for yourself to explain why you're there, and it's almost useless for everybody else. So you always drop the first chapter. But I agree with you. I think there's a way that that could be you know, and here and faster. And
0: yeah, yeah. Because the real nugget there is, I just quit what I thought was my worst working relationship ever. Turns That's out great. it was actually
1: the next one. That is great. That's a, I'm going to just take that line straight away. That's really good.
0: Ste- steal it. Yeah. These are like this is the notebook section of we want to use this to workshop it. And then, to make matters worse, I was flying to what would eventually prove to be my worst working relationship ever. I was flying to that terrible, yet I didn't know it, experience
1: on 9-11. Right. You could say, it's just like, I might have had a clue because my flight to this next worst thing was literally on 9-11. It's the universe sending you a signal. Yeah, yeah. But I'm a bit, I'm a bit slow with signals, so I
0: kept going. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a, it's endearing. It's at once like, you're opening a very intriguing loop that you want closed as a listener, but then you're also able to, like, warm up the room, like you were saying, because it's a little self-deprecating the way you just delivered that line.
1: Yeah, and you don't want to make nine eleven the, is that the centerpiece? Because when I said it, your eyes popped and your eyebrows went up and you're like, ooh, and it was like, "Oh, the emotional kind of connection has gone to the it's about 9-11 and about trying to have a flight out of 9-11 That's just a peripheral detail and i'd
0: want to know that if it was like something that if you're an nba player and you're like it was the weekend that we won the championship but then you talk about going to dinner i'm like well i'd love to hear the story of you winning the championship so when you talk about this monumental thing that a lot of people optically understand from the outside I I did feel that tug now that you say it. It's like, oh, I wanted there to be more
1: about 9-11. I need to set up the 9-11 thing if I tell it at all. Yeah, yeah. As a kind of throwaway coincidence rather than making it, giving it too much emotional heft.
0: Yeah. And one of the questions on my mind was, who was this client? Like, What was the capacity with which you knew them or didn't know them? Was it a cold intro from somebody? It was almost like, who
1: were they? What did you even mean client? That's good language as well, because it was actually... I would call it a client now, but it was was a job. I had a job lined up to be a consultant and that fell through. They set me up for another job, which was working internally because the client thing actually, it's like putting the gun on the wall, whatever that storytelling thing is, which is like if there's a gun on the wall in act one, it gets used in act three.
0: Oh my gosh, someone's screaming it. Chekhov's gun? It's basically like there's a gun on the table early in the story and it's Brought it, you know, it now because the author intended you to know
1: it. All of a sudden, yeah. you're like, oh, this is going to matter in the future. That's right. So, if I'm saying client, am I opening up, you know, the zagarnik loops, you know, that about Zaganik stuff? No, no. Yeah. So, this is a a, f- a facilitation technique, but probably connects with storytelling as well. So, Zaganik was, a, I think, a Russian psychologist who was mesmerized by the way waiters could remember orders. So like a century before iPads, they'd be like, they go into the cafe, there would be a table of six, we We'll give their order, the waiter would go, great, go back and give the order to the, the cooks. But right after that, they forget the order, like they were done. And there's a loop is this idea that if you can open a loop and not close it, you keep people's attention mm-hmm. a little bit longer. Yep. But as soon as it's closed, they move on. Right, right. I think it's become colloquially like open loops is like yeah. the phrase I've heard tossed around. Yep. So if you go, look, I've got five really important things to tell you, and I'm excited to tell you what these five things are. Now, is like, I need to stay um, around for those five things. You're like, right. so that's three down. I've got two more to go. You're like, you're keeping people's attention. Because I'm always on the assumption, Jay, that people are just looking for that moment to opt out. They're like, they're just waiting. They're like, just give me the briefest of glimpses. Um, and I'm out of here. I'm I'm distracted. So the, the Garnic Loops is one of the ways you prime and manipulate the audience to stay with you.
0: I love that. I had not heard that term despite using open loops in my work and talking about them. That's great. I think that the idea of the client, who they were and all that, it's sort of a good representation of like, and we talked to the comedian, Matt Bouchel, who has a lot of really hilarious social media content, but he also used to write for The Tonight Show. So he came on the show and we were talking about joke writing. And he was like, anytime that I'm writing a joke, either the notes I get back to make it better or what I notice of my own draft to make it better is I need to make it more specific. So it's not that I was walking to the convenience store. It's that I was walking to the 7-Eleven on the corner or I was walking to this old rundown 7-Eleven where the sign was hanging off halfway on the corner. They do hold your attention to your point. You you don't want to bail almost just because you're giving people the visual versus saying the client or the
1: person or the job you kind of take us there a little bit more vividly you know at the start of that story i'm like i were on floor 14 and i was on floor eight i've never told that before yeah it's me attempting to start showing how the wheels were falling off right from the start and i'm trying to layer in the impending disaster
0: what's really interesting is you have a couple of like whoa moments and we we talked about the way you could open to enhance that feeling but like the red dot it was like that was pretty gripping the lack of uh resources and all that stuff very relatable and common if not still wow oh my gosh what are you going to do but i think like what you could play with like one way i like to work when i'm being self-deprecating is like could you play with the upbeat positivity that you naturally bring even more like i'll be the director of whatever fantastic and I busted out my notebook and I started diagramming like my, my dream scenario in this job. And I walked in with all these oh, ideas. I even scheduled my boss. And then what happened was none of it happened. Or you know what I mean? Like you kind of like lean into, and then you have a second moment where you're talking about no team, no resources, but I was still optimistic because I'm an idiot. And yeah. what I wanted was to be an idiot with you for a moment or two.
1: Where it's like, what does that mean? Like So I'm like, great. They told me my title. I was super excited. Director of internal I'd never been a director before, so I was yes. like, great. When do I get my business cards? And they're like, we're not going to give you your business cards right away. And I'm like, okay, that's all right, no problem. But where's my seat with the team? Because I'm like, really excited. You guys look like you're an interesting group of people. They're like, we are, this is a really tight team. We're all here on floor 14 there's no room for you here at the moment, but we'll look for an opportunity to move you up. So we're going to have to put you down with the project managers on floor 18, but I'm sure it's just temporary. I'm like, I'm sure it is just temporary. I'm yes, sure yeah. that's all going to be fine. I'm like, that's I'm like so Great. Good. Oh, that's so good. Great. So I'm like, right. I'm excited to, to do a strategy. I'm just curious. I mean, when you've done change strategies in the past, what, which ones have really worked? Oh, you've never done a change strategy before. Okay. Well, that's all right. That's fantastic. But of course, to do the strategy, I'll, I'll need a, just understanding roughly what my budget is to kind of play with some of this so I can figure out where to not just put time and effort, but to put money as well. There's no budget for this. Okay. No, I'm sure I can work with that. Me and my team will, I don't have a team. Okay. It's just me. Okay. Fine. (laughs) So good. You know what it is? The layer word that you use, it's like
0: what you have here is you have like the protein and the main side and the veggie and you're just now it's seasoning it now it's tasting it and like i gotta add a little of this i gotta take away a little of that like that's a seasoning element of the story of the dish which is so good by the way my favorite in all those just because it was brilliant was there was a moment in there where you were like oh yeah i'm sure it's just temporary like that you'll sit in this over here and you were like i'm sure it is just ever because you were just so naive so optimistic (laughs) yeah that was great then you move on to the red dot moment you're like how do i add some seasoning here like i could visualize you because you were on camera of you like shuffling your chair sideways like pulling at the arms as you like kind of do this little shuffle to get out of the red dots line of sight like that was amazing like coming at it from a visual and a verbal perspective like yeah i think that's where the story is is like you presented it as it's going to be half-baked. And I was like, I actually think all the ingredients are there. And now it's just the seasoning that's next. that's what's going to really make it sing.
1: That's helpful. Yeah, thanks, Jay.
0: So you anticipate using this among groups of people in the room, virtually yes. or in person, in the workshop or
1: webinar setting, right? Yeah, it's an interesting design choice. Because if you tell a story like that, like that's a three to five minute story. That's a significant tentpole. In the thing. And it will now feel weird to me as a designer if that's the only story like that I tell. Yeah. Because if it's if I'm running a 60 to 75-minute session, which is what I normally strive for, and I've got this kind of piece of performative art, which is Michael and his, and his well-seasoned, delightfully cooked uh, story, I'm like, okay, so do I now need a second story to kind of balance that out? Mm. Just like in the How to Work with Almost Anyone book, I'm like, There are, I think, at least a couple of stories, one more closer to the start, one closer to the end, that kind of act as ballast for each other. So now I'm kind of playing with this idea of, all right, so if that's a good story, what's the story that might be the second part of that that might complete it? And if this story is about taking them down into the messiness, how do I take a story that takes them back up out of that? So there's that kind of hero's journey-esque down into the dark, out into the light.
0: You could even like play this one forward like, oh, oh, by the way, something I didn't tell you earlier about that story was and then that opens a door to take it in a new direction or almost like, you know, you have versions of stories that some speakers like to tell which are contained, which is like, here's the story and here's the three things we can learn from it. I've done and I've seen other people do like stories where you kind of like break from the action to talk more directly about what's happening and extract a lesson and then continue the action. Yes. It's almost like that's a delightful little construct. You know,
1: I saw, um, 30 years ago, a comedian called Billy Connolly. So a great Scottish comedian. He's like in his eighties now, and I think not active anymore. He was this iconoclastic maverick genius, broad Scottish accent coming from the, uh, as a welder up from Glasgow, somehow gains international acclaim. And I remember seeing him live in Canberra when I was 18 or thereabouts. And even then I could see that his ability to structure a show was just incredible because he would just keep opening up stories. And you get halfway through one and then kind of get distracted and start another story and get halfway through that and you can get distracted. So it was like this Russian doll experience, except you're halfway through the show. You can barely breathe because you're laughing so hard and you've got about seven punchlines still to come because all of these stories are still open and then he kind of brings them all back and ties them all together oh, and i was wow. like holy cow that was so impressive maybe there's this idea of going if this is the story how does it become a callback to these stand-up comedy things yeah. so that it becomes a thing i refer to towards the end of it
0: right you gotta bring back red dot you need to come back to that corner several times
1: all right that's good yeah
0: there's Several comedians, my favorite, who I've mentioned before on this show is Mike Birbiglia, who does this. Oh, he does so kind of one-man shows, right? So good. And two so far have actually made it to Broadway. And he'll start a story that is sort of the, the spine of it, and then he takes these tangents, and there's like a nice little construct he does, which is at once like the performance of the line and all like the content being performed and also what the content is as written, where he'll sort of say, I don't know, I'm just going to make something up because it's familiar to me. I'm going to tell you a story about my favorite local pizza place. So we're in the pizza place, and the waiter comes over, And then the waiter says something, which makes me remember a moment playing basketball in my childhood. And then there's a joke or two or three and he can go several branches deep now. He's that good. And then he'll come back and he'll say something. And here's the line that's like a performative line, but also as written, both matter. He'll be like, so Lorenzo the waiter comes back to the table, right? And it's like, oh, right. Like that story, we haven't finished that story. And he plays it forward and then he brings you out of it. And I just love that as a construct because I think Part of me just got bored with the way business authors, speakers, thinkers, the way I did it for many years is like, here's a story, here's a lesson. When you think about trying to teach using a story, you seem very conscious of the fact that you need to eliminate or be acknowledging biases along the way. That came through when you said, hey, I want a diverse array of perspectives and types of people in these stories. That came through when you said, I'm a straight white male and have the keys to the kingdom. When you tell a story like this, how do you gut check or even are you even concerned with gut checking? People going, well, that's all fine and good for you to say because you're that way or you're already successful. You've sold this many books. You give speeches. You're on fancy podcasts and also unthinkable. (laughs) <laughs> like you, it's easy it's one thing for you to sort of like take the piss out of yourself here. I don't buy for a second that I can think highly or care about my own moment like yours cuz like you're so beyond it. So
1: in part I'm like I don't really care. You know that quote from Bobby Kennedy which is something like 20% of people are against what everything all of the time. I'm like so there's going to be some people who won't like it. That's part of why I structure most of what my teaching as ways of people doing the work themselves. Because I'm not trying to convince them from up on the stage. I'm trying to invite them to try some stuff out. And it'll either work or it won't work. And I know enough facilitation tricks and strategies to increase the odds that they're going to decide that they like it rather than to push them into, I definitely don't like it. But, you know, the the people who... I always say that I I love a skeptic in the audience and I don't like a cynic. I think skeptics have just had their hearts broken too many times. So they're like, I'm just not going to allow myself to hope that this won't suck. Whereas cynics have already decided that this sucks and there's nothing you can do to, to convince them otherwise. So I'm like, great, give me the smart skeptics because I've got enough confidence and also I know this stuff is good and it doesn't always work with everybody all of the time. And that's not a failure on my part or a failure on the material's part. It's just kind of the statistical law of life. And if you're one of those people who hate it, so be it. And I'll say this, Jay, at the start of almost everything I do, I ask the audience three questions. They go, on a scale of one to seven, how active and engaged do you plan to be with me over the next hour? One is having a nap. The other is I've turned everything off. Second question is, on a score of one to seven, how much risk are you willing to take with me over the next hour? And finally, on a score of one to seven, how much do you care about the other's experience in the room? And I'm like, I'm not trying to bully anybody into a seven. You can give yourself any number that you want. I'm just inviting you to decide how you're choosing to show up. I mean, in some ways, this is like a a keystone conversation. Let's talk about how we're going to work together before we get into the stuff I'm going to teach you or I'm going to work with you on. And I'm like... You're adults, you get to choose. You, get, you know, If you're like, I hate this, and I'm going to sit at the back with my eyes folded and kind of be grouchy, I'm like, sure. I just want it to be an active choice, not your default choice. We choose
0: how we show up, and I can't think of a better way to summarize the way storytelling can change a person. Is you choose to show up as a storyteller. Um, the book is How to Work With Almost Anyone five questions for building the best possible relationships michael i can't thank you enough for your generosity i've been on your show you've come on my show your support of me over the years thank you for being that vulnerable and participatory in the episode today it was
1: it was a huge huge moment that i'll never forget oh thanks jay I, i love the conversation thank you
0: Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production support from Alana Nevins. Special thanks to MBS for his creativity and generosity. If you share the show, please remember to thank him too. And if you want to become a more effective storyteller in your work so that you can resonate more deeply and stand out more easily, here are three different projects of mine that I might suggest to get better. First, there's my absolutely free newsletter called Playing Favorites, that's where I send a new idea or framework every other week to help you go beyond trying to be the biggest or the best to learn how to be their favorite. It's a newsletter about resonance through story. That's at jaykunzo.com or check your show notes for a link. Then there's my coaching. I work one-on-one with people in short and longer-term engagements to develop original series like podcasts, public speaking, or your overall brand's premise and differentiation. Wherever you show up, I help you show up as a better storyteller. And finally, there's my membership, The Creator Kitchen. For ongoing support, direction, even the behind the scenes and how I create this show and other projects, and a community of people who are continuing to get better and master the craft of storytelling, you can explore The Creator Kitchen. It's a mastermind for people who want to create more valuable, more original content. That's at creatorkitchen.com. I'm back in two weeks with another episode of the show, but until then, keep making what matters. See ya. Okay.